0: Good morning. It's uh, always a blessing to be here, to be able to teach and to uh, share God's Word with you. And over the last um, couple weeks ago, I finished up a class uh, on apologetics. And this is essentially how uh, to defend uh, the Christian faith um, amidst differing worldviews and differing viewpoints, uh, even within the the Christian church. And as I was preparing for that, that class, um, i kind of been thinking about some cultural issues that, that we've been dealing with um, just as a society and uh, thinking about how some of those things have increased, um, especially the fervor and the intensity uh, over the last, I don't know, several years. Um, so I'm going to kind of share with you some of that's been on my heart as I've been going through that, that study. We'll be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 1 through 6. As I was going through that class, uh, my wife and I watched a movie called Unbroken. I don't know if any of you have seen that or know the story of the, the um, I guess, the, the protagonist in that, in that story, but essentially the, the movie itself chronicles the life of a man. His name is Louis Zamperini, and he was uh, an American bombardier in the Pacific Ocean during uh, World War II and the story, of the line in the movie highlights three major events. <clears throat> One, it starts out while he is, well, when he starts out in the war, he is uh, in his plane. And uh, again, he's the bombardier, and the, there's some pairing issues that go on while, while there. But their plane gets shot up. Um, several of the men are killed. But they're able to make it home safely, or at least to, to the base safely. Uh, shortly afterwards, making it home and surviving that, uh, they are asked to go on a search and rescue mission. And they're given a plane, that a different plane because the other one was shot up, but this plane that was used for spare parts. And uh, as they're going out to do a search and rescue mission, the plane goes down um, uh, in wide open ocean. And only three of the, the men survive that, uh, that, sh- that plane crash. The second phase of the major conflict, not only surviving the the crash, is their time out in open water. So three of the men survived. They had very little food, very little water, and it was expended fairly quickly. Uh, Miraculously, God had provided uh, a bird that came, and they killed it with their hands and were able to use its meat to actually go fishing. And sometimes fish just would jump in their in their life raft and uh, God preserve them. Over 30, and, and kind of during this time, you're, you're, you're wondering <laughs> how long this is going to go on for. Well, after 33 days, one of the men dies. Um, and uh, after 47 days, the two men are finally rescued. But they're not rescued by an American ship, as most movies or storylines, heroic movies would go. They're, they're rescued by a Japanese naval ship. This kind of sets up a third storyline and a third conflict that um, Zamperini faces. And that is, he spends two, uh, well, actually, I guess there's three kind of phases within different prison camps. He's malnourished, he's beaten, and uh, almost seemed to be singled out amongst all of the other prisoners, um, especially because he uh, had a background um, being a runner in the Olympic Games. They thought they could try to, to break him, which is where the title is Unbroken. So then the storyline, you know, the war is over, the prisoners are free, and then they do a little flash forward to his life, and he carries the Olympic torch, and, you know, the, the movie ends. As I was watching that movie, though, several things kind of come to, come to mind, especially, you know, when you see any kind of hero movie where they endure such difficulties is, one, would I even be able to, to do this? I mean, there's a sense that, you know, I stub my toe in the driveway, and I—, I I got to sit down for a minute or, you know, I was in, did kids camp a couple of weeks ago and I felt after some of the games, I was like, I just need a breather, right? You know, so um, I see my own frailty and weakness and wonder, could I survive these harrowing events one, two, three in a row? I I don't know, you know. And so you kind of place yourself in that situation. But if, if, as you watch any movie is, you know, theologically, you should start thinking and asking questions about, you know, why was this man given so many challenges when, Very few of us would face even one of those um, harrowing events. And then, you know, why did God even allow those things to happen? Why did he survive but, say, the other guy didn't survive on the life raft? Well, some of the questions that that we have as we just kind of encounter these things will go unanswered. They'll go unanswered in our life. They'll go unanswered in regards to the movie. But the movie magnifies something that we all experience— all right, we all face difficulties in life. We can at least kind of find some commonality, and inevitably we may be at a breaking point, especially at the hand of others. Well, we all will run into conflict. We all will face opposition, and as I look for somebody in Scripture to kind of you know uh, ask who dealt with things that were similar. Uh, There's several that we could go to. The Apostle Paul was was one who came to mind, and he was no stranger to difficulties. And our passage today uh, from 2 Corinthians uh, is just a part of a letter that is filled with conflict. His first letter, which is actually one of, you know, there's two letters in scripture, but he, you know, from what we can gather from these letters, he wrote four letters and this would be the last of them, but in this first letter, which we went over in 1 Corinthians over the last couple of years uh, on Sunday mornings here at the church, uh, we saw some of the issues that the Corinthians were dealing with, right? There was division in the church, there was immorality in the church, there was just things that they were confused about and, and not on the same page about. But, but when we get to this letter, we find that Paul is now in, Eph- is, is in Ephesus, and he's away from the church. And people are slipping in that are teaching something contrary to what Paul was speaking about. And so he needs to kind of clear up some of the issues that they are being taught. And he gets very transparent about what he's been, the challenges not only he's faced in in ministry, but the challenges that the Corinthians have placed on his life. If you looked in chapter 1, Paul starts out pretty early in the letter in verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul was dealing with something that um, he was at his breaking point, And he was at the point where he thought that they were going to die. That his ministry would end sooner than he expected, and he was in intense anguish over whatever that was um, dealing with. We don't have clarity in Scripture about what that specifically was, but while he was in Ephesus, which is in in Asia, in Turkey, uh, something happened that he feared for his own life. In the next chapter, in chapter 2, Paul speaks of the emotional pain that he was experiencing. He says, For I wrote to you, out of much affliction... And anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you right, here, the source of pain in his life is the church itself, and it 's the fact that he had to write a letter to correct some issues that they were dealing with, which is actually between first Corinthians and second Corinthians, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the harsh letter, and that he said. I didn't do it because I wanted to shame you. I didn't do it because I wanted you to experience pain. If anything, I was experiencing turmoil and pain because I knew I had to confront you with these things. And I did it out of love. I did it out of love. Well, in chapter 5, Paul says, speaking of, of physical afflictions, he says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And in chapter seven, he says, for when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So much opposition that Paul was facing, and he actually comes to a kind of culmination in chapter 11, where he just says, I don't feel like I need to to defend myself and tell you how much I've suffered, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he, he says in verse 24 of chapter 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You can read about that in uh, Acts where he goes to Lystra and he's stoned. And the people, you know, they drag him outside the city. They stone him. They leave him for dead. And somehow he manages to get up and walk away. I mean, amazing. Um in cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. i this guy who went through a lot. And we think about the issues that we go through in our life. We think that we don't have it so bad. But finally, Paul speaks in, in chapter 12 of one more issue. He says, God d- gave me something that was painful in my life, that I pleaded with him to get rid of. But he wanted me to keep it because he felt like I was getting too prideful. I mean, of all things, somebody who's dealing, who's dealt with all these issues, certainly shouldn't be dealing with pride. But Paul knew in his own heart he was even susceptible to that. So he says, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, just like Zamperini's life, Paul faced greater difficulties than any of us will face, um, likely in our lives. And it was often at the hands of others. Jesus promised that Paul would go through that. In Acts chapter 9, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for The sake of my name, and Jesus also said that if you are a follower of Christ, that you too will suffer in some measure. Right? We look in the the world around us, we look across the globe. We know that there are those that are facing uh, death, you know, at the hands of others because of opposition, because of different religious beliefs, um, and they are being martyred for their faith in Christ. In America, we don't have that yet. But we may. But we do face some physical hardships. Some of us will face issues of health and financial loss, fears, worries, um, other things that will put pressure on us. But probably the biggest thing that we're going to face or start to see before we see martyrdom and us giving up our lives in this country is we're going to start seeing opposition increased about those that— want to attack us for our views on God, views on the family, views on marriage, and would attack us to say that we will discriminate against those who hold biblical views. So conflict is likely to increase. And as I was thinking about kind of how would we defend ourselves or how would we endure this, instead of talking about how we'll necessarily defend ourselves and what we would say, what should our attitude be? Right? Because even though in our country, statistics say that 71% of Americans would profess to be Christian. But when we look at where, what the headlines are and what actually people believe and what seems to be things that uh, people like on social media or um, are really uh, rally behind, at least through the media, we don't see that 71% being so overwhelming. And if we looked at statistics over the last seven years, that 71% used to be 78%, but people are rapidly declining from their profession of Christ. Are they going to other religions? Islam is still at 1%, Buddhism and Hinduism is still less than that. And so really it's dominated by Christianity and starting to find a growing number of those that say that they're just unaffiliated with any religion or they're affiliated with a view that is against religion, which would be atheism. So often when we hear these things, we might think about our culture, you know, about our country slipping away. But to be honest, it's not really slipping away. It's just becoming clearer about where people stand in regards to their faith. Ed Stetzer identifies the reason for this trend. And he goes and he looks at, he was looking at the, the um, all, all kind of, uh, all Christians in general. And categorized them in three ways. The first category he called the cultural Christian. And he said it makes up about 25% of Americans. That people typically identify themselves as, in this group, as Christian. Because they equate America- as being Christian. And so other than they have no church affiliation, they have no church attendance, they have no reading of the scripture, that's it because this is where they're born and they believe some things that seem to identify with Christianity that that makes them a Christian. A second category is a congregational Christian. They have a loose affiliation with a church either through a family member, perhaps they were uh, baptized as an infant, or they may go to church on a, you know, a yearly basis, Christmas, Easter, uh, or, or some holidays. But that is the extent of their association with a local body. The third, which makes up about 25%, so kind of all evenly split, Stetzer calls the Convictional Christian. And we would say that these are true Christians. They pattern their lives after following Jesus Christ, and they would say that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior and hold up the Bible as their mandate for how to live their lives. So in the first two categories, which makes up about half of the population in America, we will start to see more and more embracing of unbiblical views. And people will start to identify themselves as something other than Christian. Because when these views start being debated and talked about more, the rubber hits the road and people have to eventually decide is this something that I align myself with or not? Faithful Bible-believing followers of Christ are a minority in America. So how can we prepare for an increase of conflict, for an increase of a clash of viewpoints? We'll see these things happen if we, you haven't ha- had them already, which most of us probably have in our families, at our workplaces, on our college campuses, in our neighborhoods. And the opposition will come not only from those who claim that they're, you know, check the box that is not Christian, whether it's some other religion or unaffiliation, but we find it coming from those who say they are Christian. And 2 Corinthians 4 is a perfect place to go because Paul gives us some insight as to how he was able to remain steadfast in the face of opposition. We'll see some parallels that we see in our culture as well. Well, the first thing he says in verse 1 is to stay encouraged. Stay encouraged. Verse 1 says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So I know it's cliche, but whenever you see therefore having this ministry, what, what is that therefore? What is this ministry that he is referring to? Well, it's the ministry to go to the Gentiles and give them the message of salvation. Paul was, is a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He was raised as what he would call a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He was under the teaching of an uh, influential leader named Gamaliel, and he was kind of his protege. And Paul was fervent and zealous for the Jewish faith. And he was right there persecuting Christians when difficulties uh, When difficulties arose. But it was this assignment that Paul was giving to not go to the Jews, but to go to the Gentiles and to suffer for the things that he had done to the Christian people. In Corinth, specifically, we see Paul facing opposition from those who were teaching a mixture of Judaism and paganism. If you were to go to Corinth at that day, uh, most of the culture would be pagan. I mean, they had uh, polyistic views, polytheistic views. They would have had multiple gods, maybe a specific god that they would have worshipped. The city might have had a particular god, um, especially anywhere in the Roman Empire. And they would have worshipped that, that god in that city. That would have been kind of the city, uh, city god. And uh, we'll kind of talk about what they believed. Now, you've got Jews that would have lived in there. They would have been dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And Jews would have held tightly to the traditions and the faith taught in the Torah. And Paul was coming to a church where believers were coming from that cultural background. And in that cultural background, you've got the Jews who were teaching tradition and the Jews who were teaching um, adherence to specific customs. And then you have those that were from a pagan background that could... Worship a particular God, but also live a lifestyle that was somewhat contrary to uh, what that God maybe uh, was, you know, espousing. Some of the, the influences that we see are a view that the body is evil and that the spirit is good. And so when you have that mindset that the body is evil and the spirit is good, is that that can kind of go in two different directions. One is you can go to asceticism. Which means that you abstain from all fleshly desires. Some world religions today, that is their sole purpose, is that the, the goal to enlightenment is to free yourself from all desires. And so that would kind of be one side of the camp. The other side of the camp is you can do whatever you like, because if the body is bad, it doesn't matter what you do in the body, because the spiritual is the only thing that's important. So that's why you saw in that day, and and especially Paul was uh, getting at this in 1 Corinthians, is that some were going to the uh, temple and they were engaging in temple prostitution because it doesn't matter what you do in the body. The spirit's the only good thing, so you can do whatever you want in the body and it doesn't matter. Now you got that all wrapped around, with those kind of backgrounds, all sitting in a congregation, wrapped around following Jesus Christ. In Paul's absence... While he's away, because he's ministering in other, in other places, you've got, other, you've got teachers that come in and start appealing to that background, to how people grew up and how, what people's affinity is and what people's leanings or, or desires are, and start shaping your message towards trying to win over those people because if you win over those people you have influence over the people and we'll find that in a you know as we look all throughout scripture that false teachers aren't in it for spiritual gain they're in it for some sort of typical monetary gain so for those that like tradition you can adhere to some of the Jewish customs. For those that, you know, like to do whatever they want and indulge in whatever pleasures, you can follow some of the pagan background. If you like to abstain, you like to fast, and you like to cut yourself off from, you know, uh, from physical pleasure, you could find that too. And so there's kind of a conglomeration of beliefs that were starting to be espoused. That's typical of all societies, Maybe a society, you know, you look in different countries, you can say, this society is typically this religion. And so usually you have kind of at its core a specific religion, but then you have influences that kind of shape what people really believe on a day-to-day basis and how they live their life um, on a day-to-day basis. So if we were to look in, in America, most Americans, if we're you know, going back to that 71%, what do what those, those people believe? Well, most Americans believe in God, kind of put them in that camp. Most Americans believe in the Trinity, so they're like, put themselves in that camp. They believe in Jesus and, you know, God and the Spirit. They believe in a heaven and they believe in hell. So if you believe those things, you would just check the box and say you're Christian. Okay, well, what does it mean when you say that you believe in God? Well, one of the things that was really interesting, and as I was kind of looking at some of this, this you know, uh, information was that, Out of evangelicals, so those that call themselves uh, Bible-believing, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So It's not just cultural, but even a little bit more so. But even even those who identify themselves as evangelical, only a third believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. So that means that two-thirds of evangelicals, and it ends up probably being about half of Americans, If we looked at kind of the broader perspective, think that the Holy Spirit is a personal force, not a person within the Godhead. Okay, This was established by the 4th century as a heresy in the Christian church, but that's just what people believe. And so when they say they identify themselves as a particular religion, that's what, what they're identifying themselves with. Well, Paul, he was fighting in the church a mixture of this influence of Judaism and paganism. And that was just, you know, reflecting the attitudes of the Corinthian society. But this wasn't new. If we looked in, you know, if you go back in Scripture and look in the history of Israel, this is the same thing that Israel dealt with all throughout its history, right? It was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. It was supposed to have all these rules and regulations and things that practices and customs to be distinct from the outside culture. And it was supposed to be something attractive for the culture to come in. And Israel was supposed to be attached to these things and influence the outside culture. But we find often that the reverse was true. That the outside culture ended up coming in and getting people to change their customs and uh, abandon the word of God. And being influenced by them. Right? Even in Israel's early history, as soon as they left Egypt... right. Their, their fireplaces hadn't even cooled in their fire, you know, in, their, in the fire, fires hadn't cooled in their fireplaces. And they're out in the wilderness making another fire, making a golden calf and worshiping to it, right? They had seen the, the miraculous wonders that God had done of parting the Red Sea and the plagues and all of that. And they're worshiping another God that they imported from <laughs> Egypt. Having a land of their own didn't change anything. They go into the promised land and they were supposed to get rid of all outside influences. Instead, they were ineffective at doing that. But they, they got a land of their own, and I'm sure if you went up to any person in there and said, what religion are you? 99% of Israelites would say I'm Jewish, or, uh, you know, father, son of Abraham. But the Lord rebuked them often as a nation. In Isaiah 2, it's kind of interesting, the Lord says, and if you want to flip there you can, I'll reference a couple things real quick. He says, for you have, in verse 6, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. And their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. And their land is filled with horses. And there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. It doesn't look like they're trusting in the Lord and worshiping him as God alone. But Israel had influences like America today. It's kind of interesting. It says that they were full of things from the east. Well, for Israel, that would have been the Assyrian empire, or maybe, you know, even after that would have been the Babylonian empire. And those were the major empires of the day that dominated and really took over most of the Middle East. And so their influence, whether it was their power or their beliefs, which they were polytheistic, or just their trade in that, in that respect, started to have an influence on the people of Israel. If we think about what is the dominating, you know, kind of uh, belief or dominating um, uh, viewpoint of most Americans that kind of, you know, uh, I guess we would just say most Americans in general, we would say we are heavily influenced by European Enlightenment thinking. And that has brought, sparked up a group of people called the New Atheists that are energized and poised to challenge what they see as a threat to their way of life, which is really the extinction of all religion, but at its focal point, Christianity. Israel was full of fortune tellers, like the Philistines. And the Philistines were on their Western culture of Israel. And when you think of fortune tellers, you think of mysticism. Well, even in America, we have on our West Coast, the place that I lived, you've got kind of mysticism and hedonism and all that, which has a big power influence with the things that we see on TV and the things that we see in movies, and has a real influence not only in our youth, but all of our culture today. It says... Israel was amassing wealth, was striking hands with foreigners, making deals with foreigners. We see that's something that's not new with America, especially as we like to make deals with people all over the world and sometimes with negative moral implications. Israel relied on its military might just as America does today. And Israel was filled with idol worship. That was kind of the extent of all the things that this culminated in. And we have our own American idols. Now I'm not saying that America is like a new Israel and we just replace America with Israel, but I'm saying what we see in Israel is the same thing that we see in America today. There is this influence and there's this pervasive pervasiveness from outside of the culture into how we live and how we operate and what we think and what we do. And Paul had it even worse. If you think about how many Christians were around in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, he would have been about 0.1%. And everywhere that he was going, there was no Old Testament, right? I mean, sometimes there were places where there was Jews and there were synagogues, and he preached at those places. But a lot of them was going into Gentile areas and preaching about God and sharing with them this person of Jesus Christ. And like most people today, when you share the gospel with somebody who just doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, he wasn't always met with open arms. Read the book of Acts and you'll see again all those things that Paul dealt with. uh, Those physical beatings, those imprisonments, even the stoning. So you might be wondering how this relates to the stay encouraged, right? Because it's not very encouraging so far. But it's not supposed to be, right? I just want to be real about where we live. But we look at what what was Paul's response. Because he faced... More opposition than than we we do even today, but we will face more. He says that having this ministry, he looked at this ministry to the Gentiles was a privilege given to him by the mercy of God, right? God mercifully allowed him to suffer these things. He said it did not discourage him. The phrase lose heart means to give into fear or grow worry or become discouraged. And knowing that the difficulties that Paul faced... You'd, you'd you'd give him an abs, you know a pass to take a sabbatical, right? Paul, you need some time off. Take a vacation, right? You know you've you've had four beatings and, and stoning and things like that. If Paul was if anyone was to get burned out in ministry, you would think that Paul would be that person. But while he's honest that there were times that he feared death, he shed tears of anguish over the churches he visited. He remained steadfast, right? If you look in the next paragraph in Second Corinthians four. In verse 8, he says, We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul would be knocked down, but he would not be broken. Because he knew that... When, my time, my time, uh, when I'm appointed to die will be the time that I'm appointed to die. God will tell me when my ministry is done. So I keep pressing forward and I keep doing the things that God has given me to do. And he knows that the suffering that I, he faces in his body will be to the benefit of those that will find eternal life in Jesus Christ. And he's willing to make that trade. He's willing to take on the burdens just as Christ took on the burden of sin in his life. For the life of others. And he says that in the next several verses. If we look at our own lives, we know that we have been given the truth of God. And so when we are perplexed about all of these cultural issues that are bombarding us and thinking, like, well, how do we, you know, what do we say to this person or that person? We just know, we step back that we have been given the truth of God. We have answered to many of life's toughest questions. We know how the world began, we know how this world is going to end. And we have hope for many of those who, frankly, have no hope in this world. And even though we face opposition, we should be encouraged. Because Jesus said this would happen. And so when it does happen, we should remember his promise. In the next chapter, Paul would say, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our true home is not here, right? Our true home is not here on this earth. It is with the Lord. So as we survey kind of the world around us and what our neighbors think and what our, you know, uh, people in the dorm room think or whatever are we encouraged by their opposition or are we discouraged? As we face these difficulties, does it make us want to press on or does it make us want to retreat? Right? In the moment, we may be filled with fear, but if God's Spirit is at work, then there should be resolve to keep facing whatever difficulties lay ahead. Is this, is this done out of blind faith or just emotional willpower? You know, how do we face these attacks. Well, Paul says that remaining steadfast in the face of opposition, not only we stay encouraged, but secondly, we trust solely in God's truth. We trust solely in God's truth. Although Paul says that he was we do not lose heart, meaning, you know, presses forward within the proclamation of the gospel in his ministry, he does draw a line as to how we'll convey his message to others. Because he knows that those that are coming in that are teaching a false message are really doing it for their own gain. And he, even those people, and we see periodically, why is Paul feeling like he needs to defend himself? He feels like he needs to defend himself because he is being accused of the very things that those people are doing. He's being called a hypocrite. He's been called preaching a message that is outdated. Uh, we'll see that when he says that the message is veiled. But... Paul continues to stay resolved. He knows that one of the things that hurts the most is the people that he spent a year and a half with laboring over, those that became converted under his ministry, those whom he is you know, sending uh, other pastors to um, in order to check up on them and sending letters to, that some of them are turning their back on him. And that betrayal hurts. But Paul responds to the accusation by saying that he renounces or he forbids things hidden because of shame, so we all have done things that we have been ashamed of, right? And some are run deeper than others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the earth? Do not be do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God." But such were some of you. Paul understands. He knows. He lived a life that was, he considered himself the chief of all sinners. But he wanted to be transparent in everything he did. He didn't want to keep or hide things that were shameful. Which in the ESV is, is uh, translated as disgraceful or underhanded ways. He wants to say that let's be honest about those things. Because how you know a false teacher is by looking at their life, studying them, examining them, and see seeing how they live the message that they preach. All right, we all stumble, but our job is to confess sins. I mean, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he said, wisdom will be justified by her deeds. Eventually, these sins will be exposed. Scripture gives some descriptions of false teachers. He says, they have an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels. They teach for shameful gain, and they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And it's hard. It's hard in our culture today, especially as, you know, we have very large churches, um, and it's hard to get to know your pastor. It's hard to see them in a personal way. But there are things that churches do. I remember when we went to a church in, in uh, Los Angeles. It was a large church, but they did things that had Q&As with the pastor. Uh, you could have them, you know, I remember trying to set up a meeting with the pastor, and they said, well, it'll be uh, two months is when he has an opening on his calendar. I was like, well, glad I don't have like a pressing issue. Um, so, but they had pastors that were kind of underneath. I'm talking about the, the main teaching pastor that was all of that, but we did. I, I set up a meeting, and two months later, you know, it was, I talked with them, and it was great. Um, and so, they, he, but he, he would do Q&As, um, you know, where you could ask a question of the pastor. But one of the things they did was they had open elder meetings. And so anybody could come to the congregation uh, and sit in the elder meetings for like the first half. And there were things that they did have closed sessions on. But it was really amazing to see how the men, all the pastors, I think there's about 20 of them in the church, interacted with each other. And the one thing that I saw was these men loved each other. right. And Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And you could see that, you know, they preached a message and they're always busy on Sunday morning when you try to get, you know, try to talk to them or get kind of personal. But you could see from this, this one way that this church uh, was able to do that, who these men were. They loved and cared for each other. And, uh, you know, and and they they gave deference for, for one another. But there's a lot of churches where you can't even talk to a pastor. Sunday morning, the pastor is not seen. You call them on the phone and you get an answering machine, or you can't even even talk to somebody. And so it's hard. And so it's hard when a a church is not transparent, is not open with the people, because the people need to see how the people live their how the pastors and the preachers live their lives. Now, doesn't mean that the pastor is perfect, because everything, every person that comes up here to preach, everybody that's in their Sunday schools to to teach, they're all sinners, and they're fallen. But we've got a calling that we're all in this together, living our life under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, under his headship as our main shepherd. And Paul says that he refuses, in the next part of the verse, to... Practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He doesn't alter the message. He doesn't change it to feat, suit people's needs, to suit a, a new uh, era, a new time. I, on the way to church even this morning, I was listening uh, to a sermon um, about how, you know, on a culture issue, about how maybe we need to change the way we look at a cultural issue uh, to be updated to the times and the era You know, that maybe we have new insight onto uh, certain um, lifestyles and and certain ways of life. And so, um, you know, there's a temptation for pastors to kind of change their message so it would be more appealing to people. But Paul says if they're teaching a false gospel, you'll notice that their life will not reflect it. And he says in verse 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. What he's talking about, he's referring to when Moses had to wear a veil coming down from uh, Mount Sinai, where he had God's truth exposed to him, and it made him shine just from he was, from being exposed to God. But the people couldn't see him because they were so sinful. And Paul says, you know what? We're, I'm going to be transparent with my life, and I'm going to be open with my life, and the truth of God is going to shine forth, and you're going to see it, and you're going to understand it. And those that are not able to see it are those who are perishing, those that, who are unregenerate. So we don't need to change our message for them because they can't see the truth of God anyway. It needs to be God who opens up their hearts and opens up their eyes and minds. So, so in short, Paul is saying there's two ways that we can trust solely in God's truth, and that is to walk in the truth and talk in the truth. The third thing in order to remain steadfast is know where the fight takes place. He says, in, the case, in their case, meaning those whose eyes are veiled, those who, whose, uh, who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sometimes we think, you know, wow, you know, the church is kind of slipping away. Christians are falling away from the church. You know, maybe it's, you know, we're not doing a good enough job by Uh, You know, what we say, maybe we have, you know, our rationality of our arguments is not persuasive enough. Maybe we have to have more emotional fervor in how we talk. But really, Paul says, the primary reason that people don't believe and those that reject the gospel are because Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It is Satan who has kept the veil over the eyes of those who reject God. Now don't think that that is against their will, like Satan is putting his hand up against people's eyes and they just can't see the truth. No, he's putting a veil up and they love it. They love the darkness and and they embrace it. Satan has mastered ways to keep people in bondage by their own accord. And he does it in a multitude of ways. There's thousands of of different religions and thousands of different worldviews. And even though they oppose each other, They're all mastered by Satan. So how does he do it? What are some of his ways? Well, first, he uses deceit. Satan desires for you to think contrary to how God wants you to think. He speaks lies, even if it sounds like truth. Scripture says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Second is accusation. Satan desires to accuse you of doing wrong or not being faithful. He accused Job of falling away. If, if God would just let him afflict his life, and Job will fall away, he's not truly yours. He just he just follows you because you bless him. Well, that wasn't true because Job remained steadfast to the Lord. Third is division. Satan desires to split up the church and to split up the family. He desires conflict and desires there to be no reconciliation. And he wants people to remain hostile towards each other and not to forgive each other. Fourthly is doubt. Satan desires for believers to doubt their salvation. He does this through accusation, and the longer a person is in doubt of the truth of God, the less able they will be used by God for his purposes. Paul says, fight this with the shield of faith. Temptation. Satan wants to keep unbelievers in bondage, and he does that through temptation. James is clear that a lot of our desires come from within, but Satan is very good at making sinful practices enticing. He's created a whole world where temptations are easily accessible, and a culture where they are widely accepted. And last is betrayal. Satan would do anything to move division to the point of betrayal, and it was Satan himself who entered Judas on the night of Jesus's arrest, right? These are powerful forces. These are powerful forces that come together, and some would say, you know, some some that uh, say that they don't believe in God say, well, if I just saw a miracle, then I would believe But Jesus told a parable. He said, Abraham, about a rich man who went to hell, and and the rich man called out to Abraham and said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And the man said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither they will be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a lot... That could be said on that. There's a lot of opposition to what we believe. And it's just, you can just go on the internet and you can find it in many different places. <clears throat> Sometimes we're accustomed to say America looks like it's, it's going to hell. But honestly, it has been. Satan is in control of the world system. And he is the one that pulls the levers behind the scenes of those who do not see the truth of God. Right? The fight we face is bigger than just those who oppose the gospel. The cacophony of lies that bombard us on a constant basis is not happenstance. It's orchestrated by a master deceiver whom we can't beat. But fortunately, it is not our fight to win. So we understand that there's a spiritual battle, and the things that we see and the opposition that we face is part of a bigger plan. And we need to realize, fourthly, our role in the process. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, in short, you know, and over the next uh, several weeks, especially in the book of Romans, you know, uh, we'll be going through, you know, what it means to live righteously. But we are not the light. We are a reflection of the light. Jesus said that we are lampstands and we are to be placed high so people can see the light of Jesus Christ that is in our lives reflected to a world of darkness. It is God who created the light by speaking it into existence. We don't possess that power. We don't have that ability. And just as God created physical light, He he is the one who creates spiritual light in people. And that spiritual light is focused on Jesus Christ. He is the glory and radiance of God. And in J- John says, In him is life, and the life was the light of men. All right, followers of Christ were to remain faithful to the calling of being a disciple of Jesus. That light shines in our hearts, and it's to illuminate and shine forth the truth of the gospel. Well, Louis Zamperini, he made it out, like I said, at the POW camp in World War II. Unbroken. Sort of. Physically, he was still alive. But what the movie cut out and kind of fast-forwarded through was a major breaking point in his life. When he came home, he was haunted by nightmares of nightly waking, uh, having dreams of wanting to uh, murder his captors. And so he started to uh, rely on drinking to erase the memory of what he had experienced And it got worse and worse until his wife encouraged him to go to a Billy Graham crusade. And reluctantly he went. But while he was there, he was brought back to the instances while he was on the raft. And he was spared and given these miraculous provisions by God. And in the POW camp where he cried out to God to just save him, this unknown God. And he realized that what was missing in his life was Jesus Christ. And as soon as he gave his life to Christ, the nightmares stopped. And he forgave all of his captors. And it did say in the movie that he went and he tried to make peace with all of them and meet with them personally. And he met with all of them except one, one guard. But he knew that he could, you could survive opposition so long by sheer willpower and physical means. But the toughest battles need to be won only through Christ. And that's how we remain steadfast in the face of opposition. Towards the end of his letter, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We have no power in our our own lives to save people. We have only the power to fight sin because Christ resides in us. And so God has given that. We start with the sin in our minds to transform our minds, which will transform our speech, which will transform our actions. And then we can then be a more powerful light of the gospel to others and to help fight the veiling of the eyes of those who are in Satan's power. And we will start to encounter conflict because of all the cultural things that surround us and all the things that we face, especially in our country. But hopefully we can be encouraged, trust solely in God's truth, not only in word but in deed, know where the fight takes place, which is beyond what we see in this physical world, and realize our role in the process as servants of a mighty God who will overcome in the end. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that is truth, that is power. And I pray that as we, um, if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we will continue to be servants who are steadfast in the face of opposition. Help us not to be timid. Help us to understand that your gospel has, um, throughout history, been attacked. But you have always preserved people. You have always helped them remain steadfast in the face of opposition. And I ask that you would work in our hearts, in our lives today. And I pray for those that anyone who does not know Jesus Christ and who may fall in the camp of checking the box that they are a Christian, Lord, but do not know you as Savior, Lord, that you will work in their hearts and that you will show them your face and lift the veil that has darkened all of our minds at one point in our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.